0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry over there. This is Stuff You Should Know, the
1: podcast about ping pong. I'm excited about this one. I'm glad. I love ping pong. Are you any good? I don't think we've ever played, have we? I don't think we have. Uh That's crazy. There was that one time we were at that uh, ping pong bar, and we just stared at each other for an hour. <laughs> but we never played. I remember that <laughs> as being air hockey. I remember the staring. <laughs> uh, yeah, dude, I love ping pong. I'm pretty good for, a you know, just a recreational ponger. Uh-huh. Uh, and, I, and I finally got a table. I got an outdoor table. Oh, nice. An outdoor table. Fancy. Mm, I love it.
2: Yeah, that's great. I fan. don't have room inside. Well, yeah, if you have an outdoor table, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I
1: got one under the deck. Very nice, and it's just the best. I love. I, I have had many times in my life where, and now it's just kind of when I can get someone over or if Emily and I have a, a window. Mm-hmm. But um, at various points in my life, I have played a lot of ping pong, including when I lived in LA. My mm-hmm. buddy John Pendell, Chef John, you know John.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um. He was, uh, I think, living in a place that had an outdoor table, and this was outdoor in Los Angeles, so it's kind of great. It's just out there in the backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my brother and I have had epic, legendary ping pong battles at his house. In oh, his yeah? fun basement.
2: Like, like matches, like a single game that went on forever kind of thing?
1: Just, I mean, not that, but like <clears> two <throat> out of three, like every time family's over there at one point, we will disappear, and everyone's like, where'd Scott and Chuck go? And we're down there, <laughs> nice. going at it. That's awesome. It's just so much fun. I love ping pong.
2: I am I love ping pong, too, but my eyes are kind of open. I realize I'm not quite as much the ping pong aficionado as I once thought I was. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Between you and this article, I realized I'm a total <laughs> schlub when it comes to ping pong. Yeah, I'm not bad. Good. Um, so we're talking ping pong today, and Chuck, you can just phone this one in. Mm-hmm. I had to do a lot of extensive uh, shoe leather research on this one, um, but it, the the idea of ping pong, when you think of it, especially in this the 21st century. Most people think of um, China when they think of ping pong, especially here in the U.S., but really worldwide because China is nuts for ping pong. And there are plenty of other countries, too, that love ping pong. Don't get me wrong. Sweden is known as one of the the major homes of ping pong. The Japanese love ping pong. It's basically almost every country except America really has a thing for ping pong. Here it's just, you know, fun, recreational stuff. In other countries, it has taken very, very seriously. And there are pockets that take it seriously here, too. There's the U.S. Table Tennis Association, which has been around since the 30s. But I think what I mean, it, as far as the public goes, thinking about table tennis players, we don't exactly, like, put them, hoist them on our shoulders and carry them around the room after a match, <laughs> like, that, like might ha- what might happen to them
1: in other countries. That's a very good point. Um, but, but, the, here but It's sort of more of a recreational... Like you said, there are some competitive players, to be sure, in organizations, but it's a it's a sport you can play while you're drinking a beer, you know? Sure.
2: Now, you don't want to do that if you are actually a competitive pro-table tennis player. But I say all that, Chuck, because um, while we think of China as, like, the home of table tennis, it actually is a British um, invention. Did you know that? I did. Well, of course you did. You're a table <laughs> tennis Pro.
1: No, I mean I knew that just because it was a variation of tennis, uh, which the Brits also gave us. Um it is a a racket sport, which um you can include things like badminton and uh smoosh ball and smash ball. What are those things they play down at Venice Beach? What is that called? Pickleball. Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. It it's is it? basically like a miniature tennis court. I think it's called smash ball. Okay. I don't know. People are yelling it in their car right now at me. But I mean, I've you,
2: heard, I think you're talking
1: about pickleball. Is it pickleball? hmm It's just sort of like a shrunken down tennis court. Yeah. Um, but obviously they're playing, it looks like tennis with oversized ping pong paddles.
2: Right, exactly. Okay, yeah, that's pickleball. All right. I, it might be called Smashball, too. You know, there's regional differences. No. Obi, think, <laughs> grinder, hero, that kind of thing.
1: I think pickle, I think Smashball is something else entirely.
2: You're thinking of Smash Mouth. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs>
1: <laughs> not that again. Yes. Um, reference to our live show that we just did. Mm-hmm. Okay. But what I was saying was, it is a uh, known as a racket sport or a racket game, all wherein right. you have a racket, you hit something over a net to another human or maybe a robot, even uh, as we'll get to. But uh, and there's a there's a court. There are boundaries of some kind that you need to hit it in. It's not just a crazy free for all.
2: Right, exactly. You can't just, like, win a point by crushing it over your opponent's head. That wouldn't be fun. It takes skill and finesse. Yeah. And it even takes more skill and finesse than, like, tennis does, like lawn tennis. Because... Lawn tennis? <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so there's a difference. There's Royal Tennis, which is played, like, I'm trying to remember what movie it appeared in. Um Maybe it was even Downton Abbey. I'm not sure. But whether you play it indoors, it's like tennis indoors, and there's like the ball is hard and wrapped in cloth. And Is that, that not just, squash? No, no. Right. There's royal tennis, and then um, there's lawn tennis or modern tennis is what it's called. And ping pong is a variation on modern tennis. But it takes more finesse because, yes, you can smash the ball, and that is a, a way to go aggressive uh, attack style um, playing. But... There's also a, a really good way to play too, which is, is strictly defensive and it's all finesse and spin. And we'll, we'll see like there's a lot of thought that goes into it, which is why if you notice, if you start to look around uh, at who plays table tennis, you'll find that there are table tennis um, tables. In, in places where there are very smart people, like MIT has a table tennis club, and CERN has a table tennis club in one of their one of their cafeterias, like smart people like this because there's a lot of physics involved into it, um, and there's not a lot of running around either.
1: <laughs> yeah, you don't see him. Uh, you don't see dum dums because they're just like, I don't get it.
2: Yeah, b- like smash ball <laughs> paddle. <laughs>
1: Uh, but we do know that the uh, – although we don't know, like, the the inventor. There is not one person that is credited with its invention. Mm-hmm. Um, but the story goes that British soldiers in South Africa or India were bored and, you know, the weather wasn't so great and they were probably drinking. And so they came up with this little smaller version of tennis, played on a table. Um, as the story goes, using cigar, uh, cigar box lids. <laughs> using Sabaro lids. <laughs> <laughs> and a uh, whittled down champagne cork to make it round. Yeah. Which, you know, that that wouldn't be
2: a bad little first, first go. I saw that exact same story was attributed to some wealthy um, British aristocrats who were bored one day. That sounds about right. But the, there seems to be unanimous um, agreement that... It was on a table with some cigar box lids and a cork whittled down.
1: Yeah, and so, you know, it it grew from there. It grow? It growed. Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> I think he's still got another try left. It growed from there into—
2: Wait, wait, wait. You, you mean grew, right?
1: <laughs> you know, I'm kidding, right?
2: Oh, okay. Okay. The, sec- the first time I knew you were kidding, the second time I was like, Chuck.
1: <laughs> I'm a good straight man. Um, You really are. It grew from there, and the names changed uh, various times. Uh, The the first um, manufacturer to actually put out and sell ping pong tables was the Jacques Games Company, and they called it Gossima. Mm -hmm. Um, There was another trademarked name, uh, Wiff Waff, Mm -hmm. which was the (laughs) Schlesinger Company's uh, name. Yeah, and the world was like, you got another try there. (laughs) There was one called Flim Flam. I don't know if that was trademarked. From a company or if that was just a nickname. And all these, with, with the exception of Gossima, they, they were meant
2: to, to um, emulate the sound the ball made going back and forth, right?
1: Really? Well, yeah. Yeah, whiff-whaff? It did not sound like whiff-whaff at all. What about flip-flam? Nope. <laughs> okay. Maybe the sound of the paddle sounds like a whiff when a whaff. Right. But not the ball. Okay, fine. But Gossamer meant,
2: uh, it was like uh, after Gossamer, which was kind of fine and thin and um, elegant, which was like the the ball play was what that was describing. They were all <laughs> terrible, terrible names. <laughs> I can't believe I just said that.
1: So uh, they did use cork at first, but they didn't bounce great. Uh, rubber wasn't good because it had too much bounce. Uh-huh. Um, the rackets were really kind of crazy looking at first. Some had really long handles. Kind of look like a badminton racket, um, with a vellum stretched over a wooden frame, but they were not—they uh, broke on the table and stuff. So they were really kind of refining it in those early years, as far as the equipment goes. Right, um, and I think it was
2: the—was it Jacques? No, yeah, it was Jacques, Jacques the J-Jacques and son, who um, were the ones that were selling those like what you just described, just kind of cheap, not well-made, not really well-thought-out equipment for ping-pong. Yeah. Which, it wasn't called ping-pong at the time until the late 1890s when that same company, J. Jacques & Son, who were a sporting goods outfit, started calling it ping-pong in their catalog. It just converted from Gassima over to ping-pong through these guys.
1: Yeah, and it was... um before that, in 1885, there was an attempt to patent it as table tennis mm-hmm. by a guy named James Devonshire, but uh, two years later, he abandoned that pursuit. Uh, I don't know if it was just taking too long or if he saw the writing on the wall, but he, he left that behind. And then it would be, um, like you said, 1901 was when Jean Jacques trademarked that ping pong name.
2: Yep, and then Parker Brothers bought the North American or at least American rights to use ping pong exclusively. And they brought ping pong to the United States with that. Um, And this is the reason why if you, you know, look up any professional association or any um, competitive like ping pong group, they always refer to it as table tennis because ping pong is a trademark. (laughs) Table tennis is not. Plus also over the years, ping pong has gotten an association with- People like um, me. Yeah, just people having fun playing it, where table tennis has been the route that, you know, most competitive, um, that, that, that it denotes competitiveness, competition pro kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. But I think if you're just hanging around the locker room or whatever with some table tennis pros, they'll refer to it as ping pong and no one's like, oh, I can't
1: believe you just called it that. And you were like, no, that's locker room talk. Right. So uh, (laughs) the same year that ping pong was trademarked in 1901, there was an Englishman named James Gibb. He found these celluloid balls uh, when he went to the U.S. that were just, it wasn't for table tennis. It was just a toy, a novelty toy. Mm -hmm. He was like, this is pretty great, actually. It's pretty lively. It's light. Uh, Just the right amount of bounce. And so I think celluloid is kind of like the route we should take. And everyone seemed to agree in that sort of became the de facto ping-pong ball. Right, and it
2: stayed that way forever. Celluloid is a a type of plastic. It's super flammable, like um, it's what film stock, like camera film, was made from forever. Um, But like I said, it's very flammable, and your ball's going to go up in flames if you pass it over a candle, like if you're lighting your game by candle. So that's not very good. But that was an enormous change that pushed ping-pong way forward because up to that point a cork ball didn't bounce very well a rubber ball bounced too much you couldn't really play ping pong like we see it today it was more like oh sir oh sorry here's another serve oh sorry uh, here's another serve it's my point it was just boring when that guy came along with those celluloid balls and introduced them for ping pong play that was it, it made it fun finally ping pong finally became fun
1: Yeah, uh, just a year after that, too, the paddle, and this is all sort of aligning perfectly, the paddle underwent a big change. Um, Over the years preceding, they had used cork to cover them and leather sometimes.
2: I saw that you can still buy leather-covered ping-pong paddles at
1: Tiffany's. Yeah, I could totally see that. (laughs) Pearl handle, leather. (laughs) Yeah. Leather facing. Yeah. But they couldn't land on the right materials. Uh, And then at 1902, at a tournament, a man named E.C. Good found this dimpled rubber coin mat, wrapped it around his paddle, and he's like, this thing is pretty boss. I can get a little spin on it. Mm-hmm. We got this ball from the year before, and everything's sort of clicking at this point.
2: Right. That was So you've got the great ball, you've got the great covering, um, and now ping pong's ready to explode. And it started to, and then it just stopped. Ooh, let's take a break. Oh, okay, all right, that's a good cliffhanger. And find
1: out what killed ping pong right after this.
2: Well, now when you're on the road, driving in your truck, why not learn a thing or two from Josh and Chuck? It's stuff you should know. Stuff you should know! Alright. All right, so ping-pong's finally coming into its own, and it's finally getting good and then right as it is it just it just drops off as a fad. The craze especially in the United States and I think in Europe too. It just kind of went away. Um, And there's no real obvious reason why, but our old pal Ed dug up um, an example that he thinks might be behind it. There was an ad for uh, the National Guard in 1914 where one of the major generals in the National Guard said that they don't want any ping-pong warriors, which implies that the sport was seen as um, effeminate or uh, that you were kind of a wimp or something if you played ping-pong. So it's possible that like that kind of... um, uh, the warlike masculinity it, it rose above it, and ping pong got pushed down as a result
1: well, and also World War I and the Spanish flu um, probably put a dent in in fun games like this overall, i would say sure i mean that 's just a guess, but they had more important uh, more important fish to fry right than playing ping pong. But I came the, back right after the war.
2: Right, right after the war. And I don't think that it is coincidental that this was also a time when people started smoking pot a lot in America, <laughs> the Jazz Age. Um, so you had jazz, marijuana cigarettes, and ping pong. It's, Those are the big yeah. three of the Jazz Age. It's quite a mix. Yep. And then, so Parker Brothers still had their, their um, trademark on this whole thing. They're like, oh, great, hallelujah, it's the Jazz Age. Um And they started throwing these competitions with cash prizes and celebrities showed up. It was a big deal.
1: Yeah, I imagine during the marijuana craze, too, they were like, this is great for what we're doing, but we got to keep score, and that's a problem.
2: (laughs) Right, somebody's got to (laughs) stay sober for this.
1: Like, what was it?
2: Whose serve was it?
1: No, wait, is it 7-6? Do we play to 21? Man, you're way too uptight for this. (laughs) So, uh, I believe in the 20s, is when they started having these big tournaments, Parker Brothers with prizes. Celebrities were coming out. Um, The ITTF was officially founded in the mid-20s. That's the
2: International Table Tennis Foundation.
1: Yeah, and they start having world championships in 1926. Yeah, like right off the bat. Yeah, and it was a big deal. Like, obviously, they stopped during World War II uh, for a period of time, but pretty much every couple of years since 1926, aside from the war, um, they started ha- holding these, uh, I guess, would it be biannual or what's every it, two years?
2: It, well, that could be, yes, biannual is every two years.
1: That's not twice a year. I think it can be. Oh, it's one of those things? I think you would
2: use semi, semi-annual might even be quarterly. I'm not <laughs> sure. I think it can mean either one, just like with weekly.
1: Yeah, but those first years, uh, Hungarians were the dominant country. Um mm-hmm. <laughs> they won eight of the first nine. Um, four of those went to the same guy, a guy named Victor Barra, won 32, 33, 34, and 35. Man, that's good. Yeah, so he was doing pretty good, but the United States was not.
2: No, the, like I said, the USTTA didn't form until 1933. And even then, if you wanted to go play really good like high-level table tennis. You went to one place in the entire country, Lawrence's Broadway Courts in Manhattan Town.
1: Got to go to New York if you want to play ping pong, see? If you can make it there, you can make it (laughs) anywhere
2: in the U.S. But don't even try it in Hungary.
1: Yeah, it just wasn't, uh, it just didn't catch on like it did in Europe.
2: No, it didn't. And uh, This is like, this is the same. Like there was never, I think it was kind of big in the 70s too, again, pot mm-hmm. in the United States. But um, it, it's never been like exp- like explosively, sustainably popular yeah. like it has in, in other countries. And in particular, um, so the Europeans are dominating table tennis from about the, the mid-20s to almost well, to the early 50s.
1: Yeah, and then uh, from 30 to 50, the Soviet Union banned it for 20 years. Oh, so really? that left a, a Soviet vacuum. Okay. So so
2: the Hungarians, well, the Hungarians would have been under Soviet control then, huh? I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, I guess they would have <laughs> been. So that would have, I guess, oh, I wonder if that's when it moved over to Western Europe, Northwestern Europe, like
1: Sweden and Germany. Maybe. Yeah, supposedly the best all-time player was a Swede. That's what I've heard too. What's so, his name? Uh, the Mozart of table tennis. I don't know. Uh, Jean Jean Ove Waldner.
2: Oh, you with the oh the Jean part? I'm like I don't know if he's Swedish,
1: and then the Ove really got me. It's probably not John, It's probably Jan Jan Ove Waldner. Yeah, nice. Supposedly so, the best ever. So, uh, is he contemporary?
2: Mm, I don't know. Okay. So um so you've got this you've got Europe dominating. America's like we're not even trying right now. And this is basically from the 20s to the early 50s. And then in 1952, Asia steps in and says, "Don't forget Asia." Um in the form of a man named Hiroji Sato. And uh, he showed up at the world championship in 1952 uh, in Bombay or Mumbai, and he said, "Hey, you know how there's no rules about what kind of paddle I can use or what size it is, or there's not really a lot of te- a lot of guidance on the paddle? Check this out. He had put foam around his paddle, and." Boy, did that make the ball bounce back! It increased the speed of the ball tremendously, and he just dominated that that tournament and became world champion in 1952.
1: By the way, that guy is totally contemporary, Jan okay. Ove Waldner. Uh, he's in his 50s. He's retired now. I don't know why you would retire from table tennis.
2: So, one thing I read, I read an article about a kid who is one of the best in the world who is actually from America. He's an Indian American. Um, he uh, he trains. Like, he has to train to move around the table fast enough.
1: Well, supposedly, if you're an advanced player, you can burn up to 500 calories an hour playing table tennis.
2: Is that right? That's what they say. That's a That's a Snickers bar and a half.
1: Yeah. I mean, I work up a sweat. But sure. this, that's me as well, though, so you have to take that in con- consideration. Yeah. I can sweat playing chess. I can't wait till you reach the age where you just walk around in public with
2: a, a hand towel around your neck. Oh, well, who does that? Uh, what's his
1: name from the office? Craig Creed? Robinson? Is that his name?
2: Oh, Craig, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, I think he's famous for sort of just yeah. draping a sweat towel over his shoulder. Yeah, why not, you know? Good for him. I'm going to follow that lead. So uh there's worse leads you could
2: follow for sure, man. Yeah. So um Hiroji Sato showed up with his foam paddled, um paddle uh, or foam covered paddle and just dominated and became uh the 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 uh hero or the champion of that tournament and of the world. But there's two legends that happened to him afterward. One, he returned home and uh was hailed a, a hero and a champion by Japan. And two, he returned home and was scorned as a dishonorable winner because he used an unusual paddle and uh, never played table tennis again. And um, it turns out that he doesn't show up in any other tournament after that one. So maybe he was like, well, I achieved it. I'm going to go uh, do some other stuff. Or um, maybe he really was like, "This was, this. was everyone's right. This
1: was dishonorable. I'm never going to play again. Interesting. I hope there yeah. wasn't some nefarious action taken. I hope so, too. So over the years, uh, a lot of changes have taken place to make it more um, playable and more, and this is like the official rules in competition, uh, to make it more playable and to make it better for people watching it. Um, They lower the net by about an inch over the years um, to make it, I guess, a little zippier and more fun. Uh, They increased, actually, not too long ago, in 2000, uh, they increased the size of the ball by two millimeters to slow it down a little bit. Um, because it was getting so fast, people couldn't even follow it. It was like Forrest Gump up in there. Yep. And people are like, this isn't, I mean, it has to be a, I mean, it's not a big TV sport here, obviously, but it's a big TV sport in a lot of the world. Right. Like, people watch this stuff. Yeah. I mean, the camera
2: has to be able to see where the ball's going.
1: This isn't hockey, you know. <laughs> people <laughs> oh, want to see what's going on. They could do the, the glowing uh, ball like they did in hockey for a while.
2: Oh, I forgot about that. Remember that? Yeah, same company that did the 10-yard line. Or the first down line. Oh right, yeah. Was it really? Yeah, yeah, it was. They, uh, I think they we patented talked, glowy things, right? Um, I think that we talked about. I can't remember what episode, but we talked about that one before. But okay, so you have the foam paddled, padded paddle. Uh-huh. You've got um, balls that work really well, and um, you have uh, what else, Chuck? You have a lowered net. Yeah. You, you have a bigger ball. You have, a, and and then probably the the. Cream of the uh, crop. That's not what I'm looking for. Man, am I just. just <laughs> the coup zonked. de gras? No, that's the death below. Okay. Um, the, uh, well, the, the pinnacle. They made it an Olympic summer sport.
1: Ah, yes, in 1988. Yes. which I'll Never is forget like, it.
2: <laughs> now it's like, okay, now you're not just wasting your life being a pro table tennis player. Yeah. Just, just in it for the pot, you know? You can actually <laughs> train to go to the Olympics for your country.
1: That's right. Pretty monumental. Um, should we talk about playing styles a bit? I think we should. I like where you're. I like where you're going or not going with this next. Well, uh, so the point is made in this article that um, table tennis is is a game all about the style of play, sort of like boxing. You can come out swinging hard. You can come out with the rope a dope. You can play defense in boxing, mm-hmm. and you can kind of do that in tennis. You can be really aggressive. And try and set up for the big smashes, or you could be uh what's known as a chiseler or a pusher right. and just be really fundamentally sound and wait for your opponent to make a mistake.
2: Right. And that was chiseling was huge um back before the foam paddles because that's all you really had. You couldn't you couldn't attack with a huge super fast return. I mean you could try, but it wasn't gonna really work. Yeah. Um but once the introduction of foam came around Chiseling became like a a decision. You could also be an an attacker as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think now you've got to have all of the weapons in your ping pong arsenal.
2: Right, exactly.
1: You know, you can play the spin game, you can be defensive, but you also got to hang 15 feet back off the table and Mm -hmm. hit those big loop shots.
2: Right. Yeah, you want to be able to do both for sure.
1: So with the chiselers, though, the defensive-minded people— in 1938, this legendary match took place uh, at the World Championships between two of the greatest chiselers of all time, um, a Polish player named Alex Erlich and a Romanian named Paneth Farkas. This was such a, like, <laughs> I mean, I read into this, too. It just doesn't seem like it's possible that the following took place. Okay, well, that's this is how... It
2: was recorded in 1965 in Sports Illustrated.
1: All right. There are a lot of little points here. Uh, this, but is, this is
2: 1938, <laughs> by the
1: way. Did you say that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the most epic part of this is it was the first point. Um, supposedly, the very first point took two hours and 12 minutes to complete. So they
2: just kept hitting it back and forth. It was a two-hour and 12-minute volley. It, it was zero zero at two hours and 12 minutes. That's how good these guys were at chiseling or just playing defensively. Like somebody hits to you, you hit it right back. Somebody hits to you, you hit it right back. You're not trying to smash it down their throat. Mm-hmm. You're just patiently waiting for them to make a mistake. When it's a fast game
1: up. still. It's not like sure. playing with a uh, six-year-old.
2: Right, but the thing is, is, it's a fast game, but you as the player— and probably as a spectator, are like, start to feel like you're about to go insane because you're locked into this. Zero, zero, like, the, for at the time, ping pong was played to 21, mm-hmm. whoever got to 21 first. And then you had to still win by two points. So if this was zero, zero for two hours and 12 minutes, the ball crossed the net 12,000 times. I just don't know if I buy it. That's a problem time wise.
1: Yeah, so here's all the things that supposedly happened. Um, A referee in the match, his neck locked up uh, and had to be replaced mid-point. His neck had to be replaced. Yeah. Uh, Ehrlich switched hands because he got tired and played with his left hand for a little while every now and then. I believe that. Um, During the point, the ITTF got together to negotiate (laughs) shortening the, the match, the game, to five points instead of 21 Right, but they had to have the
2: proper um, representatives from the different countries there. And Ehrlich was the representative from Poland, so they couldn't have this meeting without him. So they had the meeting tableside during the match, like during this point as it was going on.
1: Supposedly, Ehrlich had a chessboard set up tableside, and during the match was also playing chess and saying what move to make. I don't know about that. That's what he said. That's why did I don't believe any of this. This all sounds like tall tale. Did, well, there are other people there. All right. Well, then he played chess.
2: I don't, I don't know about that one. But I do think that there are definite elements to that. I, I believe that there was a two-hour and 12-minute period where there were zero to zero.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, think, I think at least that's, that's true. Well, there's so much stuff attached to this, it makes me doubt the whole thing. Um, Austrian players supposedly went to a movie, came back. Still during the first point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, the Romanian, Paneth Farkas, uh, missed a return.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Ehrlich goes up one zero, And then they start in on point number two. They get 20 minutes into that one. <laughs> and supposedly other members of the Polish team pulled out knives and bread and a two-foot sausage thinking that they were going to be there forever. <laughs> and this made Farkas basically lose his mind. Mm-hmm. He
2: lost his marbles like Burger King.
1: <laughs> he, he went on the attack at that point. He went from being a, uh, what do they call it, a chiseler, to going hard on the attack, hit it twice, Ehrlich returned both, and then he basically lost it, supposedly just blasted the ball over his head and ran out screaming.
2: I love that story. (laughs) That's one of the better ping pong stories around. Yeah, I believe about 10% of it. All right, but even if the only thing you believe is that they were zero zero for 2 hours and 12 minutes. No, you keep saying I believe that. (laughs) I'm saying even if that is the only thing you believe, then that's good enough. Yeah, I don't buy any of it. What do you think, like that there was a match between these two and then that's it? Everything else is made up.
1: No, I think I think lore has taken over, and that it has been enriched over the years to where people were going to movies, and the dude was playing chess. And, sure, sure, yeah. Uh, I I just I don't I don't buy it that it went down like that.
2: But do you believe that they were zero zero for two hours and twelve minutes?
1: I don't know if I believe that or not because I haven't seen a verified source other than this guy telling the story. Okay. Where did you see it other than this guy telling the story?
2: Nowhere, but I mean, like, that takes a lot of gall to just make up that story, tell it to Sports Illustrated, have it printed in Sports Illustrated, knowing that anybody could go behind you and say, well, let's look at the records for that night and see, and just say, well, this guy's totally lying.
1: Well, my answer is people have gall.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Well you and I are going to agree to disagree just <laughs> to keep things moving because I think at the very least they they were zero zero for two hours and twelve minutes. I buy that
1: Here's what I think. I'm definitely not going to say it well, it was in Sports Illustrated
2: <laughs> what?
1: <laughs> so it had to be true
2: <laughs> all right all right so That's enough enough ragging on Sports Illustrated from you.
1: Hey I, I got that magazine for many, many years. Okay. <laughs> you know who's on my first cover? Uh, Giselle Bunon Muhammad Ali. Oh, wow. I started getting it when I was a kid.
2: Jeez, wow. Do you still have that one? I'll bet it's worth like $7, $10 now.
1: I do. I think my mom kept all the, uh, like, many, many years in a box. Mm -hmm. It's kind of fun to go through and look every now and then. Oh, yeah, for sure. All right, so this fake match happens. (laughs) Uh, In the 1930s, um, Jewish table tennis players, and we should point out that many of the, the early world champions were Jewish men. Um, they fled Germany for England. And then uh, Ehrlich, who we just mentioned, the Polish player, was threatened, obviously. He was in Poland when the Nazis invaded, and he was sent to Auschwitz. And he was literally being led to the gas chamber when a German Nazi guard recognized him mm-hmm. and spared his life.
2: Yeah, Like, he was about to die, and he got moved around from concentration camp to concentration camp until the Allies uh, liberated him and others from the concentration camp he was in. And then right after the war, he went right back
1: to table tennis. Man. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. All right. I think we should take a break. Okay. And go talk about Sports Illustrated some more. All right. That bastion of (laughs) education and journalism. That's right. And uh, we'll be back right after this.
2: Well, now, when you're on the road, driving in your truck, why not learn a thing or two from Josh and Chuck? It's Stuff You Should Know. Stuff You Should Know! All right. Hey there, are you thirsty? Well, before you take a sip, have you stopped to think about what's in your water? Many conventional bottled waters contain PFAS, harmful substances known as forever chemicals. But... You can drink water as clean as nature intended.
1: Richard's rainwater collects 100% pure, refreshing drops of rain. Yes, it really is rain, everybody. This rain is caught clean before it hits the ground or becomes polluted with pesticides and contaminants commonly found in groundwater.
2: Yep, Richard's rainwater is naturally pure with no need for harsh chemicals or additives. That means no added fluoride, no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics,
1: no nothing. And you can enjoy the clean taste of Richard's still rainwater and the long lasting cold pressured bubbles of Richard's sparkling rainwater. Just visit RichardsRainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's RichardsRainwater.com. And we even have a special offer, don't we, Josh?
2: Yeah, text stuff to two five one two nine two eighty eight eighty seven, and you'll get $2 off a 12 pack case of Richard's rainwater. Sip the sky.
1: All
2: right, so Chuck, um, we were talking about like chiselers and attackers and all that. And Mm -hmm. at at first, if you played ping pong up until the 50s, up until uh, Sato showed up with his foam paddle, um, you were basically just chiseling. Everybody was chiseling. This is a patient back and forth game. Just once, chiseling. Once the foam paddles came up, it changed the game so radically. Like you said, they actually enlarged the size of the ball to increase the air resistance to it to slow it down.
1: Yeah.
2: Which was a huge change for everybody to get used to as well. I think that was in the 2000s that that change was made. But from the 50s to the 2000s, people were just crushing the ping pong ball. It got really fast and really fast paced. It was fun, but it got too fast. So... um, the, the ITTF stepped in and said, no, we got to make some changes. And that's some of the other things that they've done, too. They've made changes in rules over the, over the lifetime of ping pong to, to make the game hard and interesting, but also to make it fun to watch, too.
1: Yeah. They, uh, now you play to 11 in competition play. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to be 21. For most uh, just sort of backyard fun players, it's still 21. Mm-hmm. But I, these, people are, 21.
2: these people are so good, though, that 21, it's way too long of a game. No, yeah, you can play a point for two and a half hours. Right, <laughs> two hours and 12 <laughs> minutes, to be precise.
1: Uh, they change sometimes the serve rotation, like how many times you serve in a row before you switch it up, um, which side you play on. Um, you can't hide the ball when you serve because, uh, you know, try, trying to make the game as fair as possible. Um, the dimensions of the table are kind of interesting if you're looking at it in meters uh, and if you're from the united states it's a nine foot long table five feet wide two and a half feet high But that's 2.74 meters 1.525 meters wide <laughs> and 76 centimeters high right um, the net is six inches high uh, but that's after they lowered it a bit
2: have you seen how they make uh, balls
1: uh yeah like the little
2: factory yeah, you saw like video of it being made.
1: I can watch that stuff all day long.
2: I know, same here. Um, if you if you look at ping pong balls before they're formed into balls, they actually start as little flat plastic circles, and th- that was that is one half of a ping pong ball. And they take it and they form it. They press like a, a like a ball bearing, ping pong ball ball size ball bearing. <laughs> in hot water to mold it, and they take two of those, two halves, and put them together and seal them, and then they trim off the fat, and there's your ping pong ball. But that's not the end of the life of the ping pong ball manufacturing process because the the companies that um, make ping pong balls, specifically there's one that's like a globally dom- dominating ping pong equipment company called Double Happiness, which we'll talk about later. But they do so much quality control, it's astounding before they sell a ping pong
1: ball. Oh, I'm sure.
2: Like there's there's a, um, to, to measure bounce, there's like a specific amount of bounce that the ITTA requires for a ping pong ball. And so a company will... We'll measure it by dropping it a set height, I think like 300 millimeters, and it has to bounce back up like 240 to 260. And they measure it with the digital camera. It has to have a specific hardness, so they use a robot with a needle to test the pressure it takes to puncture it with a a needle. Um, It's like Casper mattresses, but they drop a human. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they drop, they roll it down an incline to see where it veers. I mean, like, there's a lot going on there just to make a ping-pong ball that's, that's usable in a game. Sure. I think that, I mean, I just think it's top-notch that they take it that seriously, you know?
1: Oh, I mean, any competition uh, sporting ball undergoes incredible testing. Right. Like, they just don't throw out an NFL football or a basketball either, or a tennis ball. What? It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is. But ping-pong... Ping
2: pong balls. That's what I'm talking about here.
1: I think you, <laughs> I think you secretly are kind of making fun of ping pong. I don't mean to be. I'm just <laughs> my, my ping
2: pong. <laughs> my idea of ping pong has changed as a result of of right. um, researching this. How about that?
1: So the paddles themselves, they are laminated wood. When you look at them, you can tell it's sort of pressed together of different woods. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are fi- uh, fiberglass. There are carbon fiber paddles, which I would love to give that a whirl. Yeah, but I saw that the eighty-five
2: percent of the thickness has to be wood. So does that mean there's like carbon fiber in the middle of it? Maybe or just like to make that? it like
1: slightly lighter would be my guess. Uh-huh. I have okay. no idea. Okay. Um there are all kinds of materials like from just the regular you can still get like the sandpaper paddles. Very lo-fi. Um mm-hmm. uh, but those that padded rubber on one side, uh and the textured little rubber dimples on the other side which have to be two different colors, by the way, because the other player supposedly needs to know which side you're hitting it with. Right. So they know what's coming, or, you know, to a varying degree, what might be coming. Right. But that's sort of like the classic paddle that most people have settled on right now.
2: Yeah, and the the smooth padded side would be for chiseling, and the um, the dimpled side would be for attacking, and for probably the most important part of ping pong spin to add spin to the ball
1: yeah I'm, I'm a pretty good spinner
2: oh you are huh like not just one kind of spin can you do multiple kinds of spin
1: yeah i've got a good backhand spinner shot that's very fast and a, sort of a flick of the wrist that it, it just shoots off the paddle and then has a nice little top spin to it
2: wow and i okay, try and so- angle
1: that to like the farthest corner that i can that's really impressive, Chuck. Well, I didn't say I was great at it, but... <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> you try.
2: That's the aim. This is what's going on in your head, at least, right?
1: Yeah, but I'm not like a great... Uh, I mean, what do you even call it? A smash or a a slam? An attacker? Well, just the big, you know... Oh, the smash mouth. Yeah, the smash mouth. I'm not a good smash mouther. <laughs> I'm not great. I mean, I can get lucky every once in a while, but I still try because it's sure. such a boss move. It really is pretty cool. Um, but that's sort of the... Uh, a variation of the loop stroke, which is what you see on t v when someone just throws a big haymaker mm-hmm. uh it's all in the hips and the legs, tons of top spin, and that's sort of like that main shot for what would be a big smash to me is sort of the regular shot that people volley back and forth on in competition
2: right and when you when you're doing the loop it's like from what I saw it's an upward chopping motion where you're just basically bringing the paddle up really quick as it comes in contact with the ball, which, like you said, gives it tons of top spin. And uh, there's this thing called the Magnus effect with fluid dynamics, where as this ping pong is moving through the air, the bottom or the side of it that's spinning into the air is generating more resistance. So there's higher air pressure there than there is on top. And... Or uh, I'm sorry, on the bottom, which makes the ball fall because there's less air pressure there. So when you put spin on the ball, depending on which direction it's going, you can make it go left, right, up, down, and depending on the type of um, the type of uh, what's it called when you hit the ball? Not the grip, the a ping, swing, a pong. Depending the stroke? on the, the, I guess it's the stroke. Depending on the stroke you use, you can apply different spin to the ball. But that's the big reason why, it's like one side of a ping pong paddle is dimpled, yeah. so that you can make contact with the ball and really kind of grip it while you're giving it that spin. Yeah,
1: ping pong. Uh, <laughs> so there are all kinds of grips. <clears throat> um, the the shake hand grip is sort of uh if you don't play a lot of ping pong, it's probably just the standard little. Uh, grip that you would want to use. Uh, the pin hold grip is uh, what you see my brother and Asian players use. That's Scott's move. The one with the thumb on the back side of it? Yeah. It's uh, basically your thumb and forefinger kind of wrap around the handle and almost touch each other. Mm-hmm. And then your other three fingers are resting on the back of the paddle itself. And right. it sort of sort of looks like you're holding the paddle upside down. Well, right. Because you kind of are. Yes. Uh, But that's, my brother is a total uh, pin holder. Gotcha. What about the C. Miller grip? Do you ever do that? Mm, That's Danny C. Miller. That's, I, I didn't really quite get that. And that's like the shake hand. But what I saw was like the thumb and forefinger are kind of resting on the face of the paddle. Sometimes the finger, forefinger is wrapped around sort of on the side of the paddle. What I
2: saw was that, so you've got your three, your pinky finger, your... Ring finger and your index finger—that's on the paddle. Or your handle. middle finger are all wrapped. Yeah, that's on the handle. Your forefinger and your thumb are like control. They're like up against the edges of the paddle, and it makes it easier to spin the paddle and control it. That's
1: what I saw as the C Miller grip. Yeah, well, it's easier to flip the paddle to use both sides of it. Right. Exactly. So yeah. you
2: want to chisel here, and then maybe a little attack there. Put some spin on, and then just push it back. You just flip it back and forth, thanks to Danny C. Miller.
1: Yeah, and I love the next part of this article, which is like, um, if you want to know all the rules of ping pong, go look them up. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> it would be kind of boring just to read all those out. Sure. But there are, um, I mean, if you're playing at someone's house, you play house rules. Just ask what they are. Yeah, be a good guest. Be a good guest and say, what are the house rules? Because people play differently. Um some more, not obscure rules, but sort <clears throat> sort of nitpicky rules that casual players might not know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and depending on, on where you play, the house rules, it may take effect or not. Uh, you're supposed to toss the ball at least 16 centimeters into the air before you serve. Right. Um, my house rule is you just have to have some air between the, like you can't just hold it in your hand and hit it off your hand. Like, we don't say it has to be 16 centimeters, but there has to be a little bit of air between your hand. Oh, I see. The ball has to be suspended before you serve it.
2: So what happens if someone violates your house rules? Or are they, like, tired, tired and feathered? No, you say,
1: dude, what are you doing? <laughs> Not cool, bro. <laughs> Here's a smash mouth for you. Uh, and you have to serve behind the end line. Um, that's a pretty standard even in, for house rules. Like, if oh, you're really? leaning over the table.
2: Oh, I see what you mean.
1: Yeah, You, yeah. you can't lean forward a couple of feet. That's I got gotcha. you. Because I was going to say, I thought you were saying like you have to
2: get it inside a square to get it to the other square, and I saw that that's a, that only applies in doubles.
1: Yeah, you can serve it to either side when you're playing singles. Correct. Right. And then
2: if you if it touches your hand that you're holding the paddle with, apparently according to the ITTF, your hand is part of the paddle as far as they're concerned. So if it if it bounces off of your hand, that's there's nothing wrong with that.
1: Yeah, I always get the thumb hit, though, and it it always sends it off in a bad direction. Yeah. And I always go, ah, thumb hit. You need to do more (laughs) (laughs) C-Miller. More C-Miller, less thumbsies. Right. Uh, The pimples, believe it or not, those are regulated. Um, They cannot be larger than two millimeters.
2: But... Astoundingly, the size of the paddle is not at all regulated. You could show up with um, a pickleball paddle <laughs> if you wanted to, and they'd be like, yep, it works. Um, but the foam padding on either side, if you're a competitive table tennis player, you glue your own foam on. And you and can f- cheat it too, right? Yeah, for a lot of, for, until the Beijing Olympics, you could from I think the 60s until the Beijing Olympics. They would use a specific kind of glue that um, would would it would expand and but at the same time soften the foam underneath the exterior um, of the foam padding. So you've got like the the layer, that like the rubbery layer, and then underneath that is foam like a spongy material. It would get into the pores of that spongy material, and it would make that ball bounce even faster and um, would just give it an an enormous amount of speed.
1: But just for a short amount of time, though, right?
2: Right. So if you were in a tournament, you were pulling off and then re-gluing your foam pads on... Multiple times over the course of that weekend because you get about three, four hours of good, um, um, I don't know, ricochet yeah. return off of those things, um, and then they would dry up and, and it wouldn't be quite as, as
1: useful. Cheaters. I love that article you sent where they were basically like everyone was doing it, everybody.
2: They called it doping, table tennis doping. I know. But the problem is is it had a lot of volatile organic compounds so the International Table Tennis Foundation said, "No, we don't want people getting cancer so we got to ban it." And they actually test paddles now in a little machine that tests for volatile organic compounds.
1: I love it. Yep. Get those rats out of the game get them out uh, you gotta win by two like we said generally you play to 21 at home 11 in competition I think we said and then um, obviously you just anything is a point if you get the point it's not like volleyball you don't have to be serving to get the point
2: right which I love that too it makes the game go a lot faster
1: yeah and just my whole problem is keeping up with that score
2: yeah that's why you want
1: a sober person there taking
2: <laughs> keeping score for you <laughs>
1: Uh, and I guess we should finish with this, uh, well, a couple of things, but, um, you've heard the, the term ping pong diplomacy. Yeah, there's a big story there. Yeah, that came from a real thing that happened. Um, obviously China lived, um, in isolation for decades and decades from the rest of the world. And then during the Cold War, of course, we were on, the U.S. was on the opposite side of China. Not a lot of travel going back and forth or allowed between the countries, mm-hmm. uh, until, the international competition of 1971, where the Chinese table tennis team went to the championships in Japan, right. uh, met some Americans, and in particular, one American uh, named Glenn Cowan. And he was like, Hey, man, like we're all the same, really. We all love table tennis, regardless of our grip. Let's shake hands. And he rode the bus with them on the way back to the hotel. So so let me let me just interject here he got on the bus accidentally
2: he had missed his own bus and these were buses that were taking the teams to the hotel and there was like the first 10 minutes of this 15 minute bus ride were silent and tense because these two enemy groups we're on the same bus, and no one knew what to do until Zhuang Zedong stood up and said, I'm going to go talk to this guy.
1: Yeah, but they got along great. Like I said, they had more in common than they thought. Mm-hmm. And table tennis or ping pong is literally what brought them together. And it was seen as a sort of an emblematic thing. Uh, flash forward a bit to the press covering this. It becomes a big deal. The U.S. table tennis uh, competition team said... We want to go to China uh, and like – because they're the best of the best over there. And Mao Zedong said, sure, come on over. They did so in April of 1971. They spent a week there. It was big in the news. And it literally kind of thawed relations uh, between the U.S. and China. Mm-hmm. I Pretty mean like,
2: it paved the way for a trip by richard Dixon like the the u s table tennis team went over there before Nixon did um and just shared love of table tennis and this this um just kind of international exposure of these two enemy countries like getting along whatever it takes to build common ground and consensus if it 's table tennis, awesome, so much the better so um the, the it led to um to normalized relations between the two countries very quickly, like within a year after after the or the beginnings of normalized relations within a year after the, the, the thing where all because Xiang uh Zedong came over and said, Hey man, I, I just want to say uh, thank you for playing table tennis and gave him a scarf. And Glenn Cowan had a comb on him, and he's like, this isn't a good enough reciprocal gift. So he <laughs> he later gave uh, Zhang Zidong a, um, a T-shirt with a peace symbol on it, which is pretty cool.
1: And Richard Nixon, well-known lover of Sichuan cuisine and marijuana. Yes, and peace <laughs> symbol T-shirts. He so was always wearing one
2: of those in, in, in public.
1: Uh, we should also talk a little bit about ping pong robots. Um in 1992, they they built a, a table tennis robot. Mm-hmm. Um, it was okay. Um, you could program it to to imitate different styles, um, but it wasn't like when when you played against when it played against a human being. Um, it was, what 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 would happen there? It was just shooting them all to
2: the same place at the same velocity, oh, that's right. so it was you knew exactly over over. where it was going to go. Yeah, there, there wasn't a lot of training from it, but then they started inventing robots that could, like, add spin to it and pick right. its own moves, and that was in, like, the early 90s when they first came out with those, and the ones they have today, one came out in 2016 called uh, Forfius, Forpheus, F-O-R-P-H-E-U-S.
1: This thing is scary looking.
2: Yeah, it is, and it can play some mean ping pong. Um, but it's uh it like actually plays you it's a an a i that plays you in ping pong, but it's like a giant mechanical spidery kind of looking thing
1: yeah it's really creepy looking it looks like a yeah, it looks like a big spider sitting high above the table across from you mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw the video of the guy playing it at CES and he he was, I felt bad for the guy because you, you, <laughs> know. you cannot beat the thing.
2: Well, plus he also goes, well, plus I'm kind of nervous because all these people are watching. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he
1: asked at one point, he's like, is there literally like nothing I can do that this thing won't return? they're like, nope. Yeah. So then he was like, well, why am I even here?
2: Well, yeah, it's an AI. It's it's it's, it's um, tracking the ball's velocity and trajectory and like making calculations about how to best return it. It's You're not going to win against it. Nope. Nope, but you can train really well to beat other human socks off with it.
1: That's right. So uh, I don't have anything else Do you. Uh, I'm looking at my fun facts. I got in three of the four. The last one here is in 1993, uh, the world record was set uh, between two players who, um, if you're talking like speed ping pong, they hit it back and forth 173 times mm-hmm. in 60 seconds. Oh, my God. That is some serious <laughs> speed play.
2: That is. That's an amazing fact, but it's got nothing on the two-hour and 12-minute point. <laughs> Fake news. <laughs> uh, all right. Now you got anything else? I got nothing else. All right. Well, if you want to know more about ping pong, go start playing. It's the greatest thing you can ever try to do with your life. And since I said that, it's time for listener mail.
1: We should have a totally have a ping pong table here at work. I agree. I don't think we have room for it anymore, but at one point we probably did. I know now where it's all this like production space, production space, <laughs> and we're like, "Where's ping pong?" <laughs> uh, I'm going to call this. Uh, well, we've been getting a lot of heat lately for two errors, uh, one of which was sort of a joke by me, oh, boy. which I'm going to read now. But we should also say about figs and dates and prunes same and
2: raisins—they're all the same thing. <laughs> it's like it's like pork, ham, and bacon. <laughs>
1: Now, we, we heard from a lot of people about that, mm-hmm. and we understand now.
2: Yeah, we I, I mean, I got it flat out wrong. So sorry about that, everyone. Uh, you can stop telling us now.
1: <laughs> right. This is about average life expectancy, which I mm-hmm. was kind of just kidding about. I can't. It was, I think, Spanish flu episode. Mm-hmm. I made a joke about the life expectancy being like 50 or something, and I was like, so I'd almost be dead. Um, so I'll just read this. Uh, hey, stuffers. I hope this doesn't come across as being snarky or trolly, but I think you should try and clear up the difference between average, uh, actual life expectancy and average life expectancy. Um, Chuck, more than once, (laughs) so I guess I've said this before, uh, you've made it sound as if people in the past could only expect to live into the 30s or 40s. That is not the case. People live well into their 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, just like today. Um, And he gives some prominent examples of uh, old people back in the day. Mm Mm-hmm. And then he says what drove the average life expectancy down was the insanely high rate of infant and childhood mortality. People had huge families back in the past just to try and ensure that some of their children survived into adulthood because so many died as infants and others never made it past their second or third year due to mumps, measles, influenza, etc. Uh, The absolute horror of whooping cough, let's not forget polio, and any number of plagues that modern medicine has managed to render vastly less lethal, thanks mostly to our friend Vaccines. So more and more children are surviving the battlefield called childhood, and growing into adults, and the average life expectancy has become much longer. This is a great email. Thank you, Western Medicine. That's from Joseph Cottrell. And, uh, Joseph, I was kind of just kidding about that. The f- which time? Well, every time.
2: It was a recurring <laughs> joke.
1: But that um, was a very kind email, and it was fun and funny, yeah. and, and you uh, you did it right. So thank you.
2: For sure. Plus, also, you gave you a chance to tell everybody that you know that that's the case. Yeah. And it gave everybody, it gave me a chance to let everybody know that I was totally wrong about dates and figs. Sure. Um, well, if you want to correct us like Joseph did, that was an A-plus correction email, Joseph. Uh, you can get in touch with us. You go to com and check out our social links. Or you can send us an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com.
0: on this, and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Are you thirsty? Well, Richard's rainwater is caught clean before it even hits the ground. Rain is naturally pure, so there's no need for harsh chemicals or additives. Richard's rainwater contains no chlorine, no forever chemicals,